0: It's good to see you this morning. Um, when we began this series on James, and I was telling people that we're doing James, I had so many people tell me, come up to me and say, Oh, I'm glad we're doing James. It's my favorite book. And I'm wondering if they've read James. <laughs> like, they're either, like, really spiritual and they understand how valuable and precious the Word of God is in correcting and reproving us, way more spiritual than me, or else they're really naive, and they think that James has written about everybody except them. (laughs) Because James is not what you would instinctively call your favorite book. Um, He pretty quickly gets into things that we need to examine about ourselves. And uh, today we are going to talk about James chapter 1, 12 to 18, where he talks about temptation. And uh, some of you may protest, you know, what about those verses on wisdom that come earlier in chapter 1? I was really hoping to talk about wisdom and get some of that. Don't worry, James is going to come back to wisdom in chapter 3. Or you may have been reading in, in chapter 1 and have hoped that we would talk about the poor and the wealthy in verses 9 to 11. Don't worry, James is going to come back around to the poor and the wealthy again. We won't miss it. But the verses that we might be um, ironically tempted to skip over are these verses on temptation. Nobody really likes to talk about their particular temptations, neither the temptations that are common to most people, and especially we don't like to talk about our temptations that are unique to us, our particular desires. But As we look at James and his approach with this very, very young church, remember, this is only a decade, 15 years um, after the foundation of the church. The church is scattered by persecution into many different foreign cities, and James is writing to this very, very young church, and he sees a church under pressure that is beginning in some places to show cracks in the foundation. And he's looking, and he's seeing that some of these brothers and sisters— have a misunderstanding about who God is, and a cavalier attitude towards temptation and sin. Or they're not taking it seriously. They're starting to lose their understanding of that. And so he sees what is going on, and he wants to renovate their faith in this area of temptation. The great English pastor Charles Spurgeon writes in his Treasury of David, The narrow way was never hit upon by chance. Neither did any heedless man ever lead a holy life we can sin without thought we have only to neglect the great salvation and ruin our souls but to obey the lord and walk uprightly will need all our heart and soul and mind when you think about it he says it in a very flowery way but basically what he's saying is nobody is accidentally a saint like we don't just fall out of bed and behave properly just on instinct we know that our world would be very different if that's the way human beings behaved if we just don't think about how we act, if we are heedless, we will drift into sin. We will drift into hurting one another, abusing one another, hurting ourselves, making bad decisions, being selfish. That's where we drift naturally. Nobody drifts naturally into holiness. And this is what James is getting at too is we don't want to be heedless. And James doesn't want his readers to be deceived. And so he's going to offer a lesson on a right understanding of God that we have to preach to ourselves regularly, and a fuller understanding of the life cycle of temptation and sin and how it operates. But he doesn't leave us with only that in these verses. He roots at the end of these verses our hope in God's will and word and our true identity in Jesus. And so before we start our text, uh, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to talk about what I mean by temptation or what the Bible means by temptation. Uh, Let's just pray and ask uh, the Holy Spirit to help us. Father God, uh, we know that your word is as sharp as a two-edged sword, uh, even to divide the spirit from the soul. And so, Father, this is uh, the word of James coming to us. Your Holy Spirit intends to pierce us with it, but it is a good piercing, like a surgeon. Uh, We want the scalpel uh, to find the sickness and to take it out. And so, Lord, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, our hearts... And minds would be open uh, to your word working in that way in our lives. And uh, that we would not come away from this unchanged, but we would have a new understanding of you, a new understanding of ourselves, and the circumstances that we find ourselves in, and how temptation operates in our lives so that we might overcome it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So so like I said, before we start, we're going to talk about temptation, so I want to put out there for you what I am talking about in terms of temptation and what I think James is talking about in terms of temptation in this text. So temptation is an enticement to doubt God's goodness and thereby either reject his commands or misuse his good gifts on our own selfish desires. So when you think about it, in order to abandon the instruction of God, if, if you're to say, God, I don't want to do what you say, or I'm going to go my own way, that requires that we doubt God. If if we didn't doubt God and his goodness, then we would never have any reason to abandon his ways and make choices on our own and sort of exert our independence apart from God. If, if we trusted God and we knew that he was good, then we would always know that following his ways is the best for us, that there is no joyful or more satisfying choice for us than to follow him. And sometimes that seems easy in our life when we actually do feel joyful and we do feel satisfied and content, we feel pretty good that we're following God. But then God calls us into circumstances that don't feel good and they don't feel joyful and they don't feel satisfying. And that's when temptation strikes and we are enticed to believe that our good does not lay in the direction that God calls us, but that our good lays in some other direction. And so the first part of temptation is an enticement to doubt that God is good and that we know better than God. We think that God in those circumstances must be holding out on us or he's holding back on us. He is withholding from us things that we think we should have and so we have to make choices in order to take what we think we should have because God isn't giving it to us. And that is fundamentally a lack of faith in God's goodness. That's where temptation begins. The temptation is, the enticement is, is this choice of mine is better for me than what God is providing in my life. And if you think about the very first temptation back in Genesis 3, this is the heart of the serpent's temptation. Genesis 3, 4 to 6. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, that, that's the serpent's first attack on mankind. Look, Eve. God is holding out on you. Oh, you think that God is good by giving you food and companionship with your husband and security here in the garden and the whole world to fill and rule over, but Eve, actually God is holding out on you. You should not trust God's goodness. In fact, he is holding out what is really good for you. And he asks, did he really tell you not to eat of any of the fruit? And Satan starts twisting the word of God. And he starts making Adam and Eve think, wait a minute, what did God say? Is he really good? Why can't I eat from that fruit? Why did God tell me not to do that? Maybe there's something better in that fruit that I'm not getting. And the seed of doubt in God's goodness is planted and the temptation begins and the temptation then turns into desire. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was right there with her, <laughs> and he ate. Dummy. Um, so so Eve starts to think, and Adam along with her, maybe God's holding out. Maybe I want that enticing thing there instead of God in his direction. And faithless Adam standing right there listening to the whole thing, the guy who was given the instruction directly by God and told to take care of the, everything in the garden, including Eve, he doesn't crush the serpent's head right there when he should have. He just joins in the sin. Well, the good news is a second Adam will come who will crush the serpent's head. But here we are. Temptation and desire is in our flesh. Temptation to doubt that God is truly good, that he is giving us exactly what is for our joy and satisfaction, and the desire then to be God's ourselves. We can even take what is good from God and make it evil. So things like the good gift of of enjoying food can become the sin of gluttony. The good purpose and enjoyment of men and women and the relationship between them becomes adultery and fornication. The proper desire and satisfaction that comes from providing for your family becomes greed and materialism. So even the good things that God gives us, we can twist into evil out of our desire. And so the battle we still face is this temptation. This is what I mean by temptation. The temptation is to doubt that God is good and thereby make decisions for ourselves for our own satisfaction because we think we are better at making choices than God is. The battle is to make ourselves into gods and put ourselves on the throne of our lives and have God sit at our feet or perhaps not even at our feet, maybe outside of the curb. And this battle remains in us because even as Christians, although sin no longer remain, reigns in our lives, sin still remains in our lives. And so we will have this battle of temptation until the very end of our days. Temptation will not end until we see Jesus face to face in our glorified and given new and perfect bodies. So that's what James is speaking of. He's talking about temptation and the life cycle of temptation. So that we might learn how to crush it. So let's read James 1, 12 to 18 and see what he has to say about this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, some people, I'm not going to dwell on this, but there is a parallel thought structure that goes through this text. And so, if you go home later and you're reading this this week before you go to your group, um, you can impress the ones that aren't here who didn't see this. Um, You see the thought structure in verse 12, the steadfast receive life. Verse 13, God is not evil, he does not tempt. Verse 15, our desires give birth to sin. And then in verse 15, the sinful receive death. God is good. His gifts are perfect. God's will and word give birth to us. So there's a parallel thought structure that is going through this text. It's not just James kind of winging it. He's trying to build a logical progression of thought. But we're just going to take it verse by verse, and you'll see how this plays out. James's opening statement is his hope for results. He states it, in a way that's actually quite similar to his brother Jesus would, as a beatitude. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sounds a little bit like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. That's the goal. The goal is the blessing that comes from being steadfast, of enduring. The blessing is the crown of life. And there's one way to receive this crown, James says, that God has promised, and the way to receive the crown at the end of life is to remain steadfast. But the question is, steadfast in what? What is it that a Christian is meant to endure in? What does a Christian possess that they are not to lose through the course of trial? And James tells us that the crown of life is promised to those who love him. In other words, our love for God is what must endure in the Christian under trial. As trials come, does your love for God endure or do you begin to doubt God and that he is good? Trials and tests are going to come. Persecutions and temptations. And our biggest temptations will be to chuck our love for God. God isn't for me he's against me God doesn't love me or he wouldn't allow what he allows God is holding out on me he's denying me he's frustrating me whatever it is we will be tempted to just throw out our love for God and begin to doubt God that he is for us but James says if we are steadfast in our knowledge of God's love and our love for God remains and endures then we shall receive life and see, James goes on to explain this temptation that people under trial will experience. When the pressure is on, when our lives become stressed, just like this early church, when persecutions come, that is when we are at our weakest, that is when we are most likely tempted, when we are the most under pressure, for us to begin to say there must be something better than God out there because this isn't working. And James explains that that is the temptation that people under trial will experience. Their temptation will be to doubt the goodness of God, he goes on. He explains to them, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I know what you're thinking under trial. You're thinking God is messing with you. So James just cuts him right off at the pass. I know the temptation you're facing. You are starting to think God is against you. Let me be clear. God is not against you. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So do not fall into that bad habit or that bad thought. This is foundation crack number one that James needs to fill in. You've got some bad theology about God. Don't blame God when you are tempted to disobey him or seek satisfaction in something less than God. God simply can't be tempted to do something evil, and tempting others would be evil, and God isn't evil, and so he doesn't tempt anybody to evil. It's almost like an ontological argument, for all the people out there who know what ontological means, (laughs) that James makes here. He doesn't belabor the point. He just says, God is God, and God's not evil. Argument's over, so don't think that God is tempting you. That's just terrible argumentation if you know who God is. He can't be God if he's evil. Now, you may ask me, I know that you're thinking out there, what about those texts that say God tempted Abraham and so on? What about lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer? And I don't want to turn this message into a textual analysis, but in terms of God and tempting, it's important for us to understand that in the Bible, both the word test and the word tempt is and it is exactly the same word it's always the same Greek word that's used in both cases and so part of the duty of translators is to try to determine in what sense this word is being used and so in English we would say to tempt is the negative sense that we're enticed towards failing and stumbling into sin whereas in English we would use the word test to say in the positive sense to prove the quality or the soundness of something like, engineers do not test the pillars of a bridge with the intent that it fail. At least I hope they don't. They test the pillar of the bridge to prove its strength or assess its strength. God does not tempt us to be enticed by evil to fail, but God does test us so that our strength might be shown. And in fact, we know this because when we are tempted In an evil way, such as to fail, it is actually God who provides us either the means of escape or the strength to bear up under it while it lasts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it or bear up under it. And so when you are tempted to fail, God is actually there to help you succeed. He is never tempting you to fail. He is always testing you to succeed. So God's purpose in his testing is not our failure, but to succeed and to mature, to get stronger. And that's what James wants his readers to understand here is God is not tempting them to fail. So where does temptation come from then? If, If James says temptation does not come from God, then where does temptation come from? And and you might think at this point, if you were reading and you kind of covered up the verse that came next, you would think that James might blame the devil or some demonic force that's oppressing Christians. If God isn't tempting us, then the devil must be tempting us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You've got to fix your theology of God. First of all, God's not tempting you. But I also want you, young church, to fix your theology of humanity. You are the source of your temptation. It would be such a relief to be able to put the blame of our sin someplace other than ourselves. I mean, if we can't blame, blame God, then surely we can blame the devil, right? But here is some bad news for you. As a result of the fall, we are each fully capable of tempting ourselves and sinning in remarkable ways under our own power without the need of any assistance from our enemy. All of our desires, even our good desires, have this unfortunate ability to be able to be used in sinful ways. Jesus says the same thing here. Pretty sure James was listening or heard this later. Jesus is explaining his teaching to his disciples, and he says to the twelve, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and they defile a person if we just pause here and we kind of let the teaching of jesus and the teaching of james sink in for a minute i think we all individually in our own lives know that this is true Our temptations come from inside of us. It is some need in us, some desire in us, some fear in us, some anger in us, some emptiness in us that entices us and lures us to act as Jesus describes here. There's something inside of us that rises up that says, I want to take what I want, I want to say what I want, I want to act how I want, and the collateral damage from our taking and saying and acting, we see in our own lives, is staggering the damage that we do when we do that. When whatever it is in our heart rises up and we just say it or do it or think it, the damage comes, evil things come from within and they defile us. So we know that these temptations come from inside of us, if we are honest. But in the moment of our sin, it doesn't look bad to us. This is the thing. When, when we're under pressure or whatever is happening, and we're in the moment or we're looking at our life and we're choosing to disobey God, or we're choosing to use his good gifts in an improper way, in that moment, we are deceived. It doesn't look bad to us. We are doing what we're doing because we think it seems better to us than what God has on offer. When we are being prideful, it's because pride is more satisfying than humility, we think. We like how it feels when we win rather than when we lose. When I power up in my pride over somebody and I get the last word and I really nail them, man, that feels good. And so we sin because it feels good in the moment. We don't think it's bad. We think it's good. Oh, man, I'm helping my self-esteem here, right? I can ride this argument for like the next month, you know, because I can just remember how satisfying it was. You know, or we think this affair is more satisfying than my marriage. At the time, we think this is better for me. He or she is good for me, better for me than my marriage. It feels better to be wealthy than to simply have what I need. I like getting all of this stuff and keeping all of this stuff. I don't want to just get by. I want to have lots, and it feels good to have it. The lie is better than the truth, because I would rather lie right now and get out of the trouble that I'm in than be in trouble. And so when we're in the middle of our temptation to sin and sinning, it always feels right to us that this is a good thing for us. Our desire looks good. It looks better than what God calls us to. That's why we sin. James describes them exactly this way, as a lure. Temptation uses our desires as a lure. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to go at least five minutes long. Um, Each, he says in his next verse, each person is tempted when he is lured. Now, I imagine we have a few fishers in the crowd today, this being Halliburton, and you can't move 100 meters without falling in any lake. Um, So you know how lures work. If you don't fish, you may have accidentally gone down the wrong aisle in Canadian Tire and seen thousands of them on the wall and kind of been overwhelmed because they're all painted and colored, and they're covered in shiny bits of metal, and they sparkle, and some of them are hinged in the middle so that they wiggle, and they've got little bits of feather and string hanging off of them. And to a fish, they are so tempting. The lures are enticing to a fish. They're all bright color and bits of flash, and it's designed for two purposes. Can any fisherman here tell me the two purposes of a lure that's bright and enticing? The first one is obvious. Attract the fish, get its attention. What is the second purpose of a lure designed that way? To make it, bad. To, make it to make it bad, make, To frustrate it, yeah. But there's something in the lure that isn't brightly colored or flashy. That's the hook. The lure is designed for two purposes, to entice the fish and to hide the hook. That's why lures are the way they are. Now fish are dumb. They have tiny little fish brains. And there are so many people fishing in these lakes, I can't imagine that there's a single fish left who hasn't seen a lure. I mean, surely their mom and dad have seen a lure and told the baby fish about the lures, right? You can think that the mom fish would be like, look, son, when you're out there swimming to school. You see what I did there? When you're out there swimming to school, You may see one of these bright, flashy things along the way, and it will look amazing. It will look terrific. You'll want to take a big bite of it. But when you see it, son, swim the other way. Yes, mom. And when he's out swimming and he sees it, oh, that's what mom told me about. I'm going to go the other way. But then he swims off a little ways, and he thinks, maybe that wasn't exactly what mom was telling me about. I'm just going to circle back and cruise by and see if that was exactly the same thing that mom was telling me about. And so the fish cruises back, and it's like, ooh, that looks good. I like the way that thing looks. It looks even better this time. You know, he starts to think, I'd be so much better off if I had that thing in my mouth, if I could eat that thing. And what does mom know anyway? She's a tiny fish brain. (laughs) And so the fish takes a bite and suddenly discovers the hook. If the bait is enticing enough, they're willing to endure the hook because they have little tiny fish brains. But what about us? I mean, honestly, are we any less stupid? (laughs) Because if the bait is enticing enough and our desires are far enough out of alignment with God, then we are willing to convince ourselves that there is no hook. That we can eat as much cake as we want and it won't give us diabetes. That we can sleep with whoever we want and it won't destroy our marriage or our self-esteem or our future. We can act as selfishly as we want and it will have no consequences. We actually convince ourselves that there is no hook. And our tiny little fish brains are just that dumb. But the hook is there. The hook will leave marks on your life that may never be erased. And the hook is just the beginning. When the fish bites the lure and gets the hook... Here's the thing, that's just the start of a sequence of events that is going to end badly for the fish. Biting the lure and getting the hook is not the worst of it. It ends up a lot worse. If you take the bait of temptation, James here says there is a whole sequence of consequences that result. Now I'm going to, my time for confession here. The lure that James is speaking of is actually not a fishing lure, obviously, in 45 A.D., It's not even an animal trap. The metaphor that James is using here for luring and temptation is of a woman who entices a man. But I thought that was dangerous ground to start on, and so I used the lure analogy instead. But James's metaphor here is that temptation is a woman who entices and lures you in. Now, just to be fair, the Bible also calls wisdom a woman, okay? So you get fair treatment. But that's where James goes with the sequence of events here. If you follow along, he says it goes farther than just the lure. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see how he was actually talking about a woman all along. The desire is this thing that has like a family line. So once we're enticed by our desire and we act on it, then James says it's like desire becomes pregnant. Once we are captured by desire, something is conceived and our desire grows and it gives birth to sin. Temptation's offspring, number one. Now we're following through on our desires. Our doubts about God's good plan for us leads us to actually rebel against God and follow through on that enticing thought that we had. And our sinful actions are the child of sinful desires. And when our sinful actions grow up over time, James says, sin, when it is fully grown, so now sin is like little baby sin grows up, it's fully mature now, it brings forth another child, death. The child of improper desire is sin, and the child of sin is death. Physical death inevitably, but spiritual death most significantly. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. If you employ yourself at sin, if that's your job is to sin, then your paycheck is death. When we sow sin, we reap death-like consequences, both in this world. In this world, when we sin, we see the death-like consequences like the death of a marriage, the death of relationships, the death of our health, the death of our joy, the death of companionship, the death of our mental health, the death of peace. And in the world to come, spiritual death, eternal separation from God and his eternal life. Temptation is the start of a chain that leads to our spiritual captivity, just like the fish, and not just captivity, eventually spiritual death. It's very graphic language here that James is using to explain how temptation works. That temptation is nothing to be trifled with. He needs to get his readers' attention. He doesn't want them to be unaware or deceived in any way by temptation. He doesn't want them to fall into the trap of thinking they can just play with temptation and get away with it. That, that, that is not really going to hurt them. It is going to ultimately destroy them if they play with temptation They get the hook. So he says to them, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The text kind of pivots on this clause. Don't be mistaken by anything I have said, nor do not be deceived by anything I am going to say. Don't be... So first of all, he says, Don't convince yourself that there is no blessing in enduring trial. There's life. There is eternal life. There is a blessing in enduring trial. So don't be deceived to think that there's no purpose in enduring. Don't be fooled into thinking temptation comes from God. It doesn't come from God, so don't be deceived by that either. Temptation comes from your own desire. You've got to deal with that. Don't be lulled into thinking there's no consequences for following desire into sin. The consequence is death. So James says, don't be deceived by any of these things I've told you. I've just told you three things. Don't be deceived by any of those. But also, don't be deceived or don't be convinced of anything other than what now follows this clause. He's, now, James is going to say what is right and true about God and what is right and true about his beloved brothers, about us as Christians. This is what he says, don't be deceived. Here's the truth. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Here's what is true. God is not evil, but good. God does not send us temptations, but perfect gifts. Are you deceived by the idea that God is evil and tempts you? Have you caught yourself shaking your fist at God, that he is holding out on you, that he is denying you what is good and what you should have in your life? Do not be deceived. God is good and a giver of perfect gifts, and his goodness never changes. It never varies. God is always for you. He is never against you. Nothing you do can make God love you any more, and nothing you do can make God love you any less. God's love is as constant towards you as it is to his son, Jesus. So whatever you're facing, whatever it is that you are enduring under trial right now, it is for your endurance and maturing. It is not for your destruction. God will not allow it for your destruction. So brothers, God is good, and everything perfect comes from God. So seek the help and the strength of God. That is what is true. Don't be deceived by any other thought. And then he goes on. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Here is God's strength for you. It is by his will and his word that God gives us life. He brings us forth. So now James goes back to that analogy, you know, temptation giving birth to sin, sin giving birth to death. He says, here's where you're really born from. You're actually born from the will and the word of God. That's where you come from. This is what is true. Hang on to this. God brings us forth. God makes us a new creation. Trust in God's will and lean on God's word. 2 Timothy says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here's what's true, brothers and sisters. When you're under trial, when you're enduring stress, when you're just stressed at work or stressed at home or stressed in whatever, and you are at your weakest and you are tempted to think that God is somehow holding out on you in your life because you haven't got what you think you should have, he says, don't be deceived. God is not tempting you to evil. That is your desire you need to get a grip on, and you need to turn to God because it's his will and his word that brings you forth, that brings you into life. He is for you and not against you. James describes this maturity that comes from this testing and enduring under this testing and having right thinking about God. He says this this maturity that comes in our being born and growing up and enduring in God is the result of this, is that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, that's, that's the point. That's what God is aiming at. He's aiming that we will be a kind of first fruit of his creatures, a mature fruit. God intends for you to mature into a kind of first fruit. And it's a, we don't use the word first fruit very much, but, but it's an interesting word. It's used. Who else is called the first fruit? Jesus. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, right? And so here James says you are a kind of first fruit. You're not the first fruit, but you're a kind of first fruit. After Jesus, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, and you're following him, and you're to follow after Jesus and be a kind of Jesus. You see, James sees the cracks forming in this young church under trial. These Christians that are scattered and persecuted and stressed out, they are clearly not all remaining steadfast. They are not all enduring. Their love for God is faltering. They are beginning to lose their first love. And some of you are taking revelation, have heard that this last couple of weeks. Their love for God is faltering. And so James is encouraging them, blessed are those who endure. The crown of life is promised to those whose love for God endures. And some of them are blaming God for their failing. And James says, don't blame God when you're tempted to falter. Come to terms with your own sinful nature and desire and take captive those thoughts. Some of them are indifferent to their sin and they're unconcerned about their consequence. And James is worried about them too and he says, don't be fooled. Don't think you can just sin without consequence. Don't be deceived. Those temptations and those sins will lead to death, both death-like circumstances in this world and ultimately spiritual death if your love for God proves false. So love God. Trust that he is good. Every perfect gift is from him and his will as at work in you through his word, the scripture, to make you mature, to make you able to endure, to make you a kind of first fruit like Jesus is. Because we can't do this on our own without God. And thanks be to God that he gave us Jesus to be the first fruit, to die on the cross for the things that we can't do, to pay the price that we couldn't pay, to give us his Holy Spirit so that we can endure, to give us his word so that we can learn, to, so that we can take captive these thoughts, so our minds can be transformed and we are a new creation. This is the hope that James wants these young, faltering churches to hear. So then we can ask ourselves, what's James saying to us? Under testing and temptation, where does your mind and heart go? When you don't think you're getting your fair share, when you think God has somehow left you high and dry, does your love for God diminish as the thought creeps in that God may be against you rather than for you? Do you look at what is offered outside of the will of God and think, that looks good, that looks enticing, I think I can make it better on my own without God. Like, maybe I'll go this way, even though I know he wants me to go that way. Do you start to deceive yourself that there's perhaps no harm in following those desires? Oh, you know, I can, I can get away with a little bit of this. You know, it feels good, and it's not hurting anybody. Do you start to think that maybe there is no hook, that somehow you will be the exception, that you are not going to get dragged into the boat and gutted and scaled and pan-fried and serve for dinner? Okay, I'm taking the analogy too far. <laughs> right? Do you think you're not going to get addicted? Do you think you, you're not going to burn relational bridges? Do you think you won't be left lonely and without help? Do you think you're not deceived? Remember that God is good and his gifts are perfect. Remember that endurance produces a reward. Steadfastness leads to life. Remember that God is at work through his will and his word of truth in you assuming that you actually open the word of truth and submit to God's will. I mean, that's read between the lines, that's what James is saying. You've got the word of God, and you can submit to God's will. So open his word and submit to his will, and he will make you a kind of first fruit. He will mature you, just as Timothy says there, to be complete, equipped for every good work, to endure, you could say. There is a way that leads to death. Do not be fooled brothers and sisters, into following that way. Rather, remain steadfast under trial. When temptation seems the strongest and we are the weakest, remember that God loves you. He is for you. His gifts are perfect. He is not tempting you. He's not withholding from you. He is giving you exactly what you need to mature you and to make you stronger and steadfast and to bring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that James speaks, as we said last week, James speaks just as accurately and truthfully about you and us today as it did in 44 AD. That... 1980-some years later. Nothing James says is any less true. And Father, that nothing he says about you or us is any less true. And that the way to battle temptation remains the same. To replace our faulty theology with good theology theology to replace our faulty understanding of our sinfulness with accurate understanding of our sinfulness that god is god and we are not that we need him that he is for us and not against us that his love is proven to us on the cross in his son jesus christ that when temptation comes he gives us a way of escape or the strength to bear under it that we can have victory because god is a giver of perfect gifts most of all his son we pray these things in christ's name amen